Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Pasadena Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is What's New and What's Not in Trump's Foreign Policy, and it was recorded on January 30th, 2019. Thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, somebody called me last night and said, I saw on Amazon you wrote a book called The Case for Trump, Are You F Blank Crazy? So <laughs> people always are surprised that anybody would make that argument, but I think there's an argument to be made in foreign policy. Uh, there's three things to remember. What was the foreign policy that uh, was by consensus and bipartisan in place for about 75 years? What were the limitations as the world changed? And what was Trump with no foreign policy experience at all trying to do? Remember what happened after World War II. There were three guiding principles that are architects, people like George Marshall and Dean Acheson, Harry Truman looked at. One was what we had done before World War II, we will not do again. We were mostly isolationist and not engaged. Britain had been appeasing, as had France, and of course, Russia had been, Soviet Russia had been collaborationist. So we were going to be engaged. For two, uh, principle of our post-war policy that we had been sorely disappointed in our naive belief that after the war the Soviets would partake in the Marshall Plan, the UN, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, etc., etc. In fact, Joseph Stalin had killed about four times as many people as Hitler had, and he was only an ally of convenience. He made an agreement with every major combatant in World War II, the Italians, the Germans, the Japanese, the Americans, and the British. He violated everyone except <laughs> with his true friends, the Americans and the British. Uh, excuse me, he violated all of his agreements with the British and the Americans, but he kept all the ones with our enemies. So he wasn't a reliable partner, he was an enemy. That was the second idea. The third was we were going to be engaged. We had to contain the Soviet Union from global expansionism, its allies, communist China. It had a great PR that they were still fighting World War II to continue the liberation of peoples from colonialist and imperialist like Britain and America. The third principle was the United States emerged from World War II predominant. It was the only major country of the six belligerents that had not been bombed. There was no Chinese miracle. There was no Southeast Asian miracle. France was destroyed. Britain was destroyed. The Soviet Union was destroyed. British uh, industry was nationalized, socialized, uh, whether it was banking or rails or steel or communications or healthcare. So we had the world markets to ourselves. And we would pay, as John F. Kennedy said 15 years later, any price. And that meant that if things were asymmetrical or they were not quote unquote fair, we were so wealthy that we could always afford it. Detroit was the fastest growing city in the United States, 1945. It had one of the highest GDPs. No one ever in their right mind ever thought that by 1970, Detroit would look like Hiroshima. 
1945, and Hiroshima in 1945 would look like Detroit had, uh, Hiroshima in 1970 would look like Detroit did in 1945. So there was radical changes in this post-war order. You could make the argument by after 45 years, between 1989 and 1994, it pretty much worked, if you think about it. The Berlin Wall fell. Germany was reunited. There was a new agreement on a global, uh, excuse me, a utopian continental European common market. George Bush gave a moving speech in 1990, September 11th of all dates, saying there was a new world order. The world galvanized and came together in the Balkans to stop Milosevic. It looked like the world had changed, but this post-war order would continue in some manner. However, in the next 30 years, there was a lot of confusion. Without a Soviet Union, what was the purpose of NATO? NATO expanded in that period from 12 members to 27. If you look at the membership today, it's surely not the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is it? When you look at places all over the map, all along the borders of what became Russia again. That was a dramatic undertaking. And the problem came, as, came up as any alliance is only as strong as its weak link. And everybody asked this rhetorical question, would you in the audience die for Montenegro? And we all say, of course we would. How can Trump even ask that? But in fact, I don't think anybody in Florence or Brussels is going to die for Montenegro or Lithuania or anybody else. I think Vladimir Putin understood that when he went into Crimea and Ukraine and he's bullying people. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I'm just saying that was the reality that happened to this post-war order after some 75 years. Second thing that happened is um, Germany and Japan became the, the the post-war order worked. They became the uh, respectively fifth and sixth largest economies in the world. Germany became so successful that it ran a $65 million, a billion dollar trade surplus with us. It does now. Japan, uh, roughly the same amount. Uh, and as far as NATO contributions, they had pledged rather formally to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. Only six of the 27 nations did. The United States, historically, in the 75 per period, has averaged about 5%. We went into places that were very successful uh, and not so successful. We stopped North Korea from absorbing the Korean Peninsula, a great cost in blood and treasure. We, didn't, we did very well in Vietnam, but I think strategically and politically we lost that war. And we had misadventures in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the point was that the United States was committed in blood and treasure to keep the post-war dream of a consensual society, a democratic free market country spreading around the world, the more democracies you had, the safer we would all be. But there are not too many democracies in the world. We look at Latin America, it's starting to retrench. We look at Africa, it's starting to retrench. And one of the great tenets of the post-war order was if you were able to give concessions to a country to bring them into the family of nations, they would repay that trust and magnanimity with alliance or freedom on their own, and they wouldn't look at it as weakness to be taken advantage of. So 
after the revolution in the mid-80s, the economic revolutions, in China, the United States thought this would be a good country to bring into the family of nations, and we will be willing to put up for the next 30 years systematic dumping, systematic corruption, systematic technological appropriations, systematic spying, systematic uh, patent and copyright infringement in order to allow China to leapfrog into becoming a sophisticated, wealthy country, and then naturally by predestination almost, and by logic, it will become democratic. Tiananmen Square, I think, abused us of that idea. And now China, uh, who has the second largest account surplus in the world, is a mercantile system, is starting to use that largesse in places like the Spratly Island, or an aircraft carrier, or a um, sort of imperial system, the Silk Road from Asia to Africa. The second part, of this second half of the global order was could the United States then really afford it itself? I mentioned the radical change in fortune of Detroit, but as globalization, which was the handmaiden to the post-war order, took off, and we started to see people become fabulously wealthy, not just the big, the big fortunes that are now in finance and high-tech, they're, they're not so much in oil or farming or minerals as they used to be or construction or manufacturing, but the really big fortunes, they tend to be on the coast and they tend to be expressions of not a market of two or three or four hundred million, but of five or six billion people. Was that prosperity shared equally across the country? In other words, people were asking themselves, we created this globalized world order, and it's been wonderful because, you know, if you're in the Amazon basin in your pre-modern civilization, you have, you have access to everything from eyeglasses to antibiotics, and world poverty has been drastically reduced. It was an enormously successful achievement. However, it came at a price, and the price was the United States implicitly had promised the world that if a job could be Xeroxed, outsourced, offshore, a muscular job, that meant everything from growing raisins in, in Turkey, or it could be uh, having a tire plant in Southeast Asia, or having a car plant in uh, Mexico, then it would be. And people whose expertise could not be offshored or outsourced would not suffer the downside, but would only suffer the upside. And I had this conversation once with a forklift fabricator in my hometown when his plant was shut down about 10 years ago and shipped over to Asia. And he said to me, do you like globalization? And I said, yeah, I kind of do. It's kind of neat to see a column you write and see it printed in the Asian Times or in an African and you get letters from a global audience. And he said, well, what if somebody from South Korea or Africa wrote your column for $2 or $3? Well, that would be pretty good for them. I said, yeah, that's better than the daily wage. They do it. And I said, well, they don't have my expertise. Well, he said, they had my expertise. In other words, he was saying that anybody that had muscular labor lost his job. Anybody like myself who didn't, didn't. And that we were defending a system that was not equitable. And the Republican Party had missed that. And so when you went from rural Pennsylvania to Michigan to Ohio to Indiana, you started to see that the great muscles of America were now enfeebled. 
And what they had sacrificed, this global order, didn't quite make sense. Remember Lord Ismay said at the founding of NATO, keep Russia out, us in, and G Germany down. But Germany was up. Germany had been bullying the Eastern Europeans about immigration. It has been bullying the Southern Europeans on matters of finance and borrowing. It had bullying the British on matters of Brexit, and it has the largest, the largest account surplus in the, in the world, larger than China. So it's not down, whatever you think about that. And as far as Russia out, Germany just signed a, a multi-billion dollar natural gas pact with Russia. They're, they're in, and we wanted to be in, but we're starting to going out. So there were problems and fissures in this system that question whether it had been inordinately expensive on particular elements of the population. So what I'm trying to do is suggest that's the world that Trump inherited. He didn't destroy the, the international order. He looked at certain contradictions, paradoxes, and ironies. The second thing to remember is he came in without any foreign policy experience. He had a natural animal cunning that had sensed this in a way 16 other Republican candidates had not, that this foreign policy paradox would be valuable in the electoral college because he would appeal to the so-called deplorables and irredeemables in a fashion that Republicans usually didn't, and they didn't for good reason because the only thing that really works is free market economics, open trade, and all that. But he saw that that system had been warped both by friends and allies. The third thing to remember is that he had no expertise. So he had people like Steve Miller or Stephen Miller or Steve Bannon or Michael Flynn that were guiding him, but these were not people from the Council on Foreign Relations, the Brookings Institute, the Department of Political Science, Hoover Institution. These were not skilled, experienced grandees that knew something about foreign policy. So he had a choice if to implement this vision, he had to bring outsiders who would obviously embarrass themselves because they were not, not I don't want to be cynical and say that they were not skilled in the arts of Davos, but they were not skilled in, in basic diplomatic know-how. And so he would have to bring in people that had distinguished careers, and some of them we all know and honor, like Jim Mattis, there's been no better, I think, Secretary of Defense. But he's not wedded to the Trump vision, I think. And so these were people he brought in, and it was an inherently an unstable situation. So what was he trying to do? Trying to say to the post-war order, if I don't adjust you, modulate you, adapt you, it's going to implode. And he did it in a very Manhattan real estate manner. If you read Art of the Deal, you don't go to NATO, as Barack Obama did, and said, you know, you guys have been free riders, and I'm really, really getting excited and angry that you don't pay your 2%. If you deal with unions in Manhattan, environmental groups, social groups, crooked politicians, et cetera, et cetera, you say, damn, NATO, it's no good, it doesn't fight terror, I'm going to get out of it, and, let, and that's how you, you start to negotiate. And he's been quite successful. They just upped their contribution by $100 billion, if you believe that that outweighs the damage he did by quote unquote damaging relations or being rude or inconsiderate to 75 years of closely, um, close cooperation and work. He's been very on, if you look at the Pew polls, Germany, it's again 65 
billion dollar surplus with the United States, polls the most anti-American of any country in Europe and one of the most anti-American countries with the exception of Iran and Russia and Cuba. About 55% of Germans do not like the United States. It's hard to know why they have such a great deal with us. And the answer is that he has been railing about their 1.4% contribution to NATO, which is what Germany does, most of the other 23 members of the EU do. So I know the EU and NATO are not completely synonymous, but if Germany won't pay its fair share to NATO, then EU countries that are in NATO won't do it either. And they haven't been. And so in, Trump comes up and says, the emperor has no clothes. I don't care about the historic Marshall Fund and all these things. They're not paying their own share. We bail them out of world. We saved them from themselves. We gave them all this money. They're, their uh, Audis and their BMWs have tariffs that are much higher than all, all this. And it was shocking that anybody would dare to do that and to do it with people who either weren't really agreeing with him privately. There was a lot of people, remember in the Trump administration the first two years, who sort of went over to Europe and said, look, this guy's crazy. He scares me more than he does you. So give a little bit more to NATO or I'm going to turn him loose on you. It was sort of bad cop, good cop. It had some advantages, but the disadvantages were that ultimately people started to whisper that Secretary A and Secretary B and Secretary C really didn't believe in the Trump agenda. And it wasn't like Trump could say, I'm going to go over to the Council on Foreign Relations and find somebody who does, because there wasn't one of them who does. So we had to bring in people through trial and error, like Mike Pompeo, who had been a congressman, not even in the CIA, more than a, a year and a half. So it was very hard to find talent who would look at this vision. The second thing, uh, when he tried to implement it, he looked at China and said, we're not going to bring it in the family of nations, and it's cheating. And it's cheating to such a degree that it's gaining military clout, and it's sort of one of his advisors said, it's sort of like the Japanese co-prosperity sphere of the 1930s. They're making a mercantile colonialist system by going up to countries, the Philippines, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and they're saying the United States is spent. You're not really under the nuclear umbrella. You cut a deal with us. Or, and then every once in a while, it would cut its leash and let, let North Korea go. And the United States is engaged into strategic engagement, strategic patience, six-party talks. But in that process, North Korea had developed supposedly missiles that can reach Portland or San Diego or here where we are today. And so what Trump's attitude was this post-war order was pretty well-founded. Well it did its job by, 18, by 1989 to 1994, but it didn't evolve. And the result is... <laughs> We've created a monster in China that's, uh, if you look at its recent party congress statements, it's committed to world hegemony. We have no tools to stop it other than old-fashioned tariffs, which everybody hates because of their destructive legacy in the 30s and elsewhere. But we're, we're stuck with them. NATO is, should, is valuable if it will update and everybody pay their fair share. Europe has about a $20 trillion uh, GDP economy, we're about 21, 22 we're going to be. So the, the EU in aggregate and the countries in NATO that make it up have as much money as we do and they're not paying their way because they feel that we're, we'll pay any price anywhere. When we look for allies in Afghanistan, 
uh, or Iraq or Libya or Syria, we don't find necessarily a lot of strategic partners. We're not able to translate tactical victory on the battlefield, which we always achieve, to strategic uh, resolution in the long-term interest of the United States and the West. So we have to question these things. And out of that conundrum came sort of a doctrine that I think that H.R. McMaster, who I think of all of the uh, people who were not wedded to the Trump doctrine when he went in, was pretty faithful to it. If you read his strategic assessment in 2017, I think they called the, the word he used was principled realism. They preferred that to Jacksonianism or um, don't tread on me, foreign policy. And it went something like this is what is emerging uh, from these antitheses of the old world order and Trump's anger and inefficiency and inexperience into something like uh, we're not going to get engaged on the ground with adversaries, but we're going to try to create conditions that are not favorable to them in the long run. So we're going to be very punitive with Iran on trade. We're going to try to pump as much oil as we can to crash the world price. We're going to try to encourage. We're not going to stand away in 2009 when during the Green Revolution, we're going to actively encourage revolution. We want regime change, not just a word. We really do it. But we're not going to go into Iran like we did in Iraq. Same thing with North Korea. We're going, nothing had worked under the Bush, um, Clinton, or Obama administration. So we're going to have tough sanctions. And when people are told that they're, we're told that people are eating grass and we're starving, we're not going to send somebody over with a basketball or football, Madeleine Albright or somebody to have a deal, we're going to be tough on, on North Korea. Same thing with China. Ch we feel, if you talk to the Trump people, their GDP is inflated. Data is not accurate. They're much in much worse shape than we are. And they will come to a deal before we will. And that deal will not be what we would like, but it will be better than what was in the past. And so. Out of this idea, it is protect American interests, but don't nation build, don't, be, don't adopt preemption, be punitive, and then find a method to coerce behavior that's conducive to the world order without a lot of cost and expense on particular segments of the American population, such as those who engage in manufacturing or industrialization, and do not put up with asymmetries because we are wedded to the new world, old world, post-war order. Because China and Europe now are as wealthy as we are, and the days when they can run up large trade deficits, or they can have asymmetrical trade agreements, or they can have uh, unfair burden sharing in the case of allies, or that people uh, say one thing to China and Russia, and then they do another, are over with. Will this uh, strategic? realism or principled realism or Jacksonianism named after it, will it work? I don't know if it will or not because uh, the number of people who are against it, not really on the principle or the logic of it, but because of the Trump brand are multifarious. You have the media, you have the bipartisan foreign policy establishment, you have the Council on Foreign Relations, you have the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. All of these groups are wedded to these long-held 75-year-old relationships that in many case, cases do not reflect the way the world really is now. 
And second, we're so attuned to the idea that the United States is so wealthy and so free, and it's the beacon all over the world of every immigrant, that 21 trillion in deficit or 20 trillion in national, excuse me, in national debt is, is not a big problem. We can always solve the Medicare, the Social Security crisis. Uh, when we had problems with energy, we just, we just fracked, we horizontally, we always get out of our problem. So we can continue to underwrite these projects, both militarily and commercially. We can rebuild Afghanistan and turn it into a South Korea. We could have done it in Iraq, but we pulled out too early. We should have gone into Libya and stayed longer. We should now go back into Syria. We can go all over the world and we'll be united in doing this. And a large part of the country said, the people who always do this don't really pay the price economically or much less in blood and treasure with their own children or they're in a particular corridor from Washington to Boston or from La Jolla to Berkeley that don't share our views of the world necessarily and we don't want a part of it anymore. And so it was creating enormous domestic tensions. And it creates a very strange political, I'll finish, burden for the Trump administration because in some sense he is mouthing uh, nostrums that the left, they want to get out, they always wanted to get out of Afghanistan, so does Trump. So is Trump tough or is he weak? He doesn't want to go and stay there in Syria. He said he wanted to bomb the SHI out of ISIS. He did. He destroyed 95%. Now he's being criticized as being too soft on ISIS. And the people who really engaged in lawfare and would not let majors and captains in the field have the license to use artillery and airstrikes now say they want to stay and they're being heralded as tough, tough realists. So there's a lot of contradictions and a lot of it will, uh, as they always do in foreign policy, it will uh, depend on to what degree that the ingredients that got Trump elected, to what degree will they come out and vote? They didn't to the same degree in the midterm elections. They never do for a president, but we'll see in 2020. And there's a few issues, even though they're foreign issues, that uh, have played pretty well. Everybody in America seemed to like the idea of moving the embassy from Jerusalem, uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I don't know what Trump thought about that, but he thought it was a good idea and he liked the idea that everybody had been too timid after promising to do it, so he did it. He liked the idea of getting out of the Iran deal, never really was ratified as a treaty as it should have been. It was a disaster in many ways. He got out of the Paris Climate Accord. He, I don't know what the word would be, but he de-escalated or he drew back from the principal American notion that the Palestinians are always cent central to a Mideast settlement or Mideast prosperity or security when in fact common fear of Iran seems to be much more in the mind of people in the Middle East than the, the plight of Hamas and has in their association with Iran and Hezbollah. But it depend and the same thing with the border problems with Mexico. It depends on what degree people who in these key states saw that the established elite opinion on these issues of economics, border security, intervention, foreign policy and and prosperity that was equally uh, apparent throughout the United States will come back into fashion. And to what degree uh, Trump's own inner demons and his inexperience will sabotage what has been so far, I think, 
a genuine and largely successful effort to recalibrate U.S. foreign policy. With that, I'll let, open the question. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.